Lord, we love you with all our hearts. And we do, Lord. Our desire is to worship you, is to obey you. Lord, we need to know how. We need to know how to worship. Lord, you say that you desire uh, worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we need to learn your truth. We need to walk in your spirit. Lord, we want to obey, but Lord, we want to obey you in the way that you desire. We want to know your commands. We want to know your ways so we can walk in them. And so I pray tonight, Lord, that as we study your word, that once again you'll speak to our hearts. Lord, how we need to hear from you day in, day out, throughout this life. And Lord, we know that it's by studying your word that our faith grows. Lord, God, our steps, God, our minds tonight as we contemplate these truths. We ask that you bless us tonight, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. The Salvadoran Civil War raged from 1980 to right around 1992. During this bloody conflict, a group of Salvadorans, they fled from their village and they crossed the Limpa River to seek refuge in southern Honduras. It was a costly crossing, though. People were gunned down on the beaches. They were shot in the water. That day, the Limpa River ran red. Those who did make it across, they set up camp, a refugee camp. And this new community's first task was to establish three committees who would establish the basic services needed for the community's survival. There was a construction committee, there was an education committee, and there was a Comité de Alegria, or as we say in English, the Committee of Joy. This was the group who planned the celebrations. Now, it's interesting to me that on the list of necessities for survival, right up there with digging latrines and erecting roofs on structures and even teaching their kids to read, these folks saw the value of dancing, the value of joy and celebration. As we learned last week, the book of Philippians is all about joy. It's about dancing even in the midst of danger. Even though Paul is in a prison cell, though his circumstances are less than ideal, there is a joy in his heart that he wishes the Philippians and all Christians would experience. This is why he begins chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, notice Paul's a typical preacher. He says, finally, when he's really about halfway through his letter. Never get too excited when you hear the preacher say, finally. <laughs> he says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. You know, one of the best teachers is repetition. Football teams, they'll run the same plays over and over. Baseball players feel ground balls time after time after time. They repeat the same skill until it becomes second nature. This is why I've been known to repeat a Bible study from time to time. Some truths bear repeating. You need to revisit them from time to time over and over again. In fact, as you survey the Gospels, I think you'll notice that Jesus often repeated himself. Our Lord knew that repetition is the best teacher. What Paul is about to tell the Philippians, he says, they've heard before, but he knows that they need to hear it again. Now he begins, beware of dogs. 
And some Bible scholars believe that this is actually a future prophecy intended for the 2012 college football season. Paul is warning the Auburns and the Georgia Techs and the Florida Gators, beware of them dogs. Actually, the word in the Greek is spelled D-A-W-G. I'm just kidding. Of course, I'm just kidding. Actually, when Paul uses the word dogs, he's not thinking of UGA football players or even the cute little cuddly canines that we keep as pets. In ancient times, dogs were wild. They were vicious predators. They were a threat to humans. They were a carrier of disease. Here Paul is using this metaphor. He's calling, do- he's calling the false teachers there in Philippi, he's calling them dogs. They were a pack of wild dogs. They were carriers of contaminated doctrine. Now these were the guys that we first saw in Galatia. They were called the Judaizers. They believed that a man was made right with God through faith in Christ plus a whole smorgasbord of rules and rituals and good deeds. That faith in Christ was not enough. These Judaizers, they taught a tag team salvation. That it took both Jesus and the Mosaic law to make a man right with God. Once it was a legalistic lady who shared this same sentiment. She was talking to her pastor one day, and she said, I believe the Christian life is like rowing a boat. One oar is the law, the other oar is faith in Christ. If you drop either oar, you row in circles. You need both oars. Well, the wise pastor, he replied, Ma'am, that's a fine illustration, but there's only one problem. You don't get to heaven in a rowboat. The Judaizers, they advocated a mixture of faith and works, Christ and law, grace and grunt, the flesh and the spirit. But Paul was adamant. He contradicted this notion. Righteousness, a right standing with God, is the result of Christ plus nothing. Nothing else needs to be added to faith in Jesus Christ for you and I to obtain and maintain a right standing with God. In fact, add anything to faith in Jesus, and you got bad news, not good news. Paul goes on, he says, Beware of these dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. One of the derogatory names that the Jews used for the Gentiles was dogs. And here Paul, he calls the Jewish false teachers by their own denigrating title, dogs. The Judaizers taught that in order to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. That faith in Christ was not enough. That you also had to follow Jewish code and custom. And the chief custom on their list was circumcision. This is why Paul says, beware of the mutilation. I mean, how does clipping a fold of flesh add virtue to a man's life? You see, real righteousness is transmitted spiritually, not physically. God wants transformation, not some operation. Rather than the works of the flesh, salvation is a gift of the Spirit. 
It's received through faith in Christ, not as a reward for some human effort. Salvation is all about God's grace. Paul is saying that true children of God are not those who mutilate their body, but are those who purify their heart through faith. Thus, the Philippians should have no confidence in the flesh. When we use this term flesh, think of it this way. Think of the flesh as what we are apart from God. The flesh is all that you are apart from Jesus Christ. On occasion, the New Testament will use the term to refer to the base, sensual, physical appetites of selfish humans. You know, that word, flesh, <laughs> it just sounds sort of sketchy and, and sort of sinful. Hey, but flesh isn't always synonymous with evil. At times, Paul's flesh got dressed up and came to church on Sunday. Hey, it got religious. It behaved itself according to the strictest of religious decorum. Yes, on the one hand, the flesh can be promiscuous and lasciviousness. But on the other hand, the flesh can be moral and upright. The flesh is who we are apart from God. It's being independent from God. It's trying to live life on our own, in our own efforts. The flesh can refer to man's loftiest and noblest efforts. The flesh can refer to our basest efforts. But the problem is there's still man's efforts. And human effort can never make a man right with God. Paul says in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I mean, if there had been a man who could have earned his way to God, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And in these next couple of verses, he's going to take us on a tour of his trophy room. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. Now, that was exactly according to the law. I was circumcised according to exact specifications. You know, it's interesting that God did require the Jewish males to be circumcised on the eighth day. I read that a baby's blood doesn't begin to clot until eight days after the baby's birth. Isn't that interesting? Doctors today, they, they make up for that by giving the baby a vitamin K shot to speed along the process. But God, the Creator, was aware of that detail Long before modern science was, that's why God required circumcision to occur on the eighth day. Paul goes on and he says, I was of the stock of Israel, and I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he had a star-studded, pure-blooded, religious pedigree. He came from the right tribe, from the right family. He says, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. The word Pharisee means separated ones. Think of the Pharisees as a religious gang that rumbled with rules and with rituals. Call them the lords of legalism. They were the strictest of all the Jewish rabbis. And they treated outsiders with a judgmental attitude. They viewed Jewish tradition as their turf. Paul was one of them. And he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. When Jesus and his crew crossed onto their side of the hood, the Pharisees, they got ugly, man, especially Paul. He wanted to rumble. The Pharisees opposed anyone who ignored their rules. 
that may, and that made the early Christians easy targets. He says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So, surgery, pedigree, Pharisee, zealotry. According to legalism, Paul had flawless credentials. If anybody could be right with God on their own, it was Paul. But here's what he concludes, verse 7. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. The word counted means to assess or evaluate. The Greek philosopher Socrates once said, The unexamined life is not worth living. And Paul had examined his life. He had carefully calculated. He had added up his righteousness and he had put it on a scale. And he had balanced it out with what God required. Reminds me of the drill sergeant who was in charge of the new troops. Their first inspection was a disaster. The new troops, they came out all sloppy and disheveled. And the sergeant was so angry, he was speechless. Finally, he shouted at him. He says, you guys need to step out here and take a look at yourselves. That's hard to do. And yet that is what Paul did. He took a step outside of himself. And he looked at his life. When he met Jesus, he stepped back from all his religious achievements. And he reflected on the pursuits that had driven his life. And it suddenly hit him. Nothing he had been proud of before came close to the joy and the blessing and the righteousness that he had received in Jesus Christ. He counted everything loss for the knowledge of Christ. In fact, Paul's religious ambitions had actually got in God's way. For as long as he was depending on his own goodness, he could never be good enough for God. In verse 8, Paul confesses, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Notice this. It's not what you've done, but it's who you know that makes you right with God. He counted all these things that he had done lost for the excellency of knowing one person, Jesus Christ. It's not what you've done, it's who you know that makes you right with God. Paul knew that Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is our ticket to heaven. All Paul's clerical credentials all his medals of honor, all his religious merit badges were worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. I love what he says in verse 9. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, not having that righteousness that's formed through the flesh, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. At one time in his life, Paul was proud of his accomplishments. They proved that he was better than his peers. Surely his good deeds would also please God. Before he came to Christ, Paul reminded, Paul reminded me of my kids when they were tots. I'll never forget Zach and Natalie when they were little. Kathy would dress them up in these little sailor suits, these little sailor outfits. They were so cute. And, and they would walk around, and they would be dressed up looking like each other, and they were just adorable. But then you would get up close, and you'd take a whiff, and you'd smell them. 
Wow. Atrocious. They had messed in their diapers. And you would think to yourself, how could anything that looked this adorable and this cute smell this rotten? And yet that was Paul. Oh, he looked cute on the outside. He was, he was super religious. But underneath, he stunk with pride and with self-righteousness. You see, when Paul came to Christ, he learned that true righteousness is never man-made. The only way that we can be right with God is through faith. When we trust in Christ, then Christ's righteousness gets inherited by us. It gets transferred to us. We are clothed in His righteousness. In light of the merits of Christ, notice Paul now viewed all his good works, all his righteous deeds, he calls them rubbish. Did you know that word rubbish? It literally means dung or manure. When Paul tried to earn a right standing with God... When he relied on what he did, when, when he said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do. All it was was do, do. That's all it was. But when he stopped trying and he just trusted in the righteousness he could receive through Christ, hey, he became spotless in the eyes of God. Let me ask you tonight, are you trusting in your religious performance? Are you trusting in what you can do, the righteousness you can earn and you can gain and you can manufacture? Or are you resting in what Christ has done? Are you trusting in His righteousness? As Corey Tim Boone used to say, nestle, don't wrestle. Rest in Christ. Your best efforts are manure. It's through faith that we mature. And why is righteousness so vital anyway? Access to God, relationship with God, is given only to those who have righteousness, who are in a right standing with God. You see, sin has to be forgiven. Favor has to be shown for us to really be allowed into God's presence, for us to really know Him. And you see, this was Paul's goal. He states it in verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. You know, everybody needs a vision in life. Everybody needs an ambition. What is your ambition in life? I, I like the poster of the teenage boy. He's a big soccer player. And, and he had this poster in his wall. It was a, of a soccer player. And this, this soccer player, he's on the ground. He's dirty. He's exhausted. He's wearing this painful expression on his face. And then the caption underneath the soccer player reads, No pain, no gain. No gain, no goals. No goals, no scouts. No scouts, no scholarship. No scholarship, no college. No college, no girls. No girls, get up, man, get up. My point is, is we all need a goal. And I can think of no higher, no more fulfilling, no more thrilling ambition than to know God. Wow, a personal relationship with the God who created you. Now that is the ultimate experience. Paul says, his goal, his ambition, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But you see, this is where a lot of us stop short. Oh, it's cool to want to know God. We all want to know God. Oh, it's exciting to know the power of his resurrection. We want to know that resurrection power. But Paul doesn't end it there, notice. 
He also wants to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this challenges me. Have you ever had a friend who enjoyed being with you, who enjoyed being your friend as long as you were joyful and you were fun to be around, but the moment you had a problem, that friend split? I mean, these kind of fair-weather friends, there's not much loyalty with these people. Think of your kids. Think of it this way. You want to help your kids through their heartbreaks, through their tough times. You know, what pained me most as a parent was to see one of my kids suffering on the inside, but, but one who threw up a facade. Oh, I'm cool, Dad. Oh, I got it all together, Dad. No big deal. When they wouldn't let me in, when they wouldn't let me share in their suffering, that's what hurt me the most. You see, here's my point. If you really love someone, you'll want to walk with them, not just through their joy, but through their suffering. You'll want to know what hurts them. You'll want to know what bothers them. You'll want to know not just the power in their life, but you'll want to know the sufferings of things that break their heart. And this is how Paul felt about Jesus. He loved Jesus. He wanted to know Christ and His power, certainly. But he also said, Lord, I want to know your sufferings. I want to know what breaks your heart. What breaks your heart? I want it to break my heart. He desired the same kind of intimacy with Jesus that, that we hope to have with our kids. Not only sharing in His victories and in His joys, but also in His pains and in His sacrifice. Paul continues, verse 12, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul had a goal to know Jesus Christ, and achieving that goal became his utmost desire in life. Paul gave it his all. He put on a full court press to know Christ. You know, if you've ever played basketball, you know that the coach, when the coach puts on the full court press, he ratchets up the intensity. He expects you to be in your man's face. You need to beat him to the sideline if he goes there. You need to anticipate the pass. You see, a full court press is sort of controlled mayhem. That's what it is. And this was the intensity that Paul put into his desire to know Jesus. 24-7, he lived for Jesus Christ. He was always pressing to know Christ, pressing to know his power, pressing to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Notice verse 13, he says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended at this, at this point in his life, understand, he's been a Christian for 30 years. And yet he says, I do not consider myself to have apprehended. He knows he's come a long way, but he still knows he's got a long way to go. Paul says, I haven't arrived. None of us arrive. This life is all should be spent pressing toward the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. We're all pressing. The goal is to never stop growing spiritually. It's been said, the largest room in the world is the room for improvement. Never stop pressing. Paul continues, but one thing I do. I love this. Notice his focus here. It's not, 
these 50 things I dabble in. It's this one thing I do. See, there are a million activities in this world that will distract you for seeking God. Knowing God demands focus. It demands clearing your schedule of other activities. It demands making time for the thing that matters most, and that's to know Christ. In a few weeks, we're all going to get involved in watching the London Olympics. And we're going to see world-class athletes compete. And for many of these athletes, they have spent their whole life looking forward to their 10-second event. They will have sacrificed activities that other kids enjoyed. Everything in their life has been focused toward this experience in London. You see, this is the fixation that Paul had on knowing Christ. Everything in his world was working toward one end, and that was to know Jesus Christ. Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. You know, one of the ways that Satan distracts us from seeking to know Jesus is by bringing up our past. Did you know that? The devil is an astute historian of forgiven sins. And by the way, so is the internet. You know, one of the very scary features of the web is the ease in which you can send opinions and rants and videos and other dumb stuff with just a click of the mouse. You send them out into cyberspace and you can never get them back. Did you know there are services today like defendmyname.com that clean up your online reputation for an expensive fee? Jesus has been providing a similar service for years. Hey, put your faith in Christ and he cleans up your record on the heavenly web. And that's where it matters. He blots out all of the stupid, evil stuff you've ever done. What's been covered by the blood of Jesus has been forgotten in the mind of God. That's glorious. But we need to follow suit. We need to take our cues from the living Lord. We need to forget those things which are behind. Don't let the devil bring back up your past sins. If they're under the blood of Jesus, they're out of the mind of God. They should be out of our minds as well. I've heard it put, there are two things you can't do backwards. Drive a car and live your life. You can't. Paul forgot those things which are behind. He was pressing forward to that which was before him. This is why I've never believed in dredging up hidden memories. You know, if a hurt is on the surface, if it's festering or if it needs to be resolved, well, then deal with it, certainly. But there's no need in regurgitating up our past. Don't let someone put you on a wild goose chase down memory lane. Our focus needs to be forward, not backward. Paul writes, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Forget the past. Focus all your attention on the glorious future that you have in Jesus Christ. This is where victory is found. I love 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It tells us that we're a new creation in Christ. We need to be learning to see ourselves in Christ Jesus. Paul sums it all up here in verse 14. He says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree 
that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. In other words, we started out by faith. We've walked by faith. Thus, we're going to finish by faith. Don't allow someone to put you on some kind of works trip. It's by faith from beginning to end. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And of course he's talking here about the Judaizers. By adding to faith in Christ certain requirements for salvation, what they were doing was cheapening the work of the cross. Hey, if you or I could do anything to make ourselves right with God, then Jesus would have never had to die in our place. To suggest that we could earn our salvation is to cheapen the work of Christ upon the cross, is to make the cross, is to say that it would have been in vain. Even today, there are still enemies of the cross, I hate to say it, but there are people, there are preachers today who try to dilute the importance of the cross. There, there are Christians today are supposedly Christians who are embarrassed by the cross. They view it as an insult to modern sensibilities. Oh, that bloody, gory cross. Hey, but apart from that cross, there is no remission of sins. If it were not for the cross, we'd all go to hell, for none of us can be good enough for God on our own. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It reminds me of a poem. You're just out of date, said young Pastor Bates to one of our faithful old preachers who'd carried for years in travail and tears the gospel to poor sinful creatures. You still preach on Hades and shock cultured old ladies with your barbarous doctrine of blood. You're so far behind, you'll never catch up. You're a flat tire stuck in the mud. For some little while, a bit of a smile enlightened the old preacher's face. Being made the butt of ridicule's cut did not ruffle his sweetness and grace. He turned to young Bates, so suave and sedate. Catch up, did my ears hear you say? Well, I couldn't succeed if I doubled my speed. My friend, I'm not going your way. Paul and the Judaizers, man, they were headed in two completely different directions. Paul loved the cross. He valued the cross. He knew that it was through the cross of Christ that he was saved and made right with God. These Judaizers, they despised the cross. They were enemies of it. Paul continues to describe the false teachers in Philippi, verse 19. He says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. In other words, their real motivation was their own selfish gain, their, their own ecclesiastical profit. He says, in whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They were earthbound in their reasonings. They lacked the mind and the heart of heaven. They needed the wisdom of God. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you know that your citizenship, as a believer in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. This world is not our ultimate destination. It's not our home. We're just passing through. Guys, heaven is the goal. 
Soon, I believe very soon, Jesus is going to split the skies and he's going to take us home to be with him. Our lot in life, our hope is not down here. Our hope is in the future. It's up there. We're citizens of heaven. And he will transform your lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, as we've noted many times before, our redemption will not be complete until Jesus has restored everything that sin has defiled. And that includes these mortal bodies. At the rapture, these corruptible bodies are going to be raised incorruptible. They're going to be reunited with our spirits in the clouds. Here Paul points out that if you've been, you know, if, if you've been pinned down by a band of Indians... And, and you know that the U.S. Cavalry is right over the, the, the hill there where your eyes are going to be. You're going to be. Your eyes are going to be right over those hills. You're going to be looking for the cavalry to come. And Paul is saying to us that we need to be looking for Jesus. We need to be looking for, the, for him to come. He's the cavalry coming for us. All these things are going to be made right again when Jesus returns. That's chapter 3. Notice Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. In other words, continue in your faith until you get to heaven. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, apparently, you, Odia, and Syntyche were two squabbling sisters there in the church at Philippi. News of this tiff had made it all the way to Rome had made it all the way to Paul. In the Greek language, the grammar here seems to indicate that both ladies were at fault in their dispute. And yet this dispute was so great that it had become a threat to the whole church. And it had been brought to Paul's attention. And notice how Paul settles this rift. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't even give them any specific instruction. He simply encourages them to get it together. He says, be of the same mind in the Lord. I hope you guys know that there's no such thing as a conflict-free family. Disputes, hurt feelings, arguments arise in every family. But a mature family believer will understand this. They won't be surprised when human beings, even redeemed human beings, act like human beings. I mean, we need to expect it. And when it happens, when this friction takes place, don't let it unravel your faith. When it occurs, make sure that you love and that you walk humbly and that you work it out for the sake of the body. That's how mature family members act and that's how mature believers in the body of Christ act. Sure, we're going to rub each other wrong from time to time, but hey, we've got to work it out. That's what a family's all about we got to stick, at, stick with it, stay with it. we got to be of the same mind in the Lord. Notice verse 3. He says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now here you see that pastor is a dangerous job at times. For here Paul encourages the pastor there in Philippi to help mediate between these two warring women. That's why pastor's a dangerous job. 
You get in the way between two squabbling sisters there, and there's no telling what might happen to you. But here's the point. Certain disputes require some outside help. That's what the leaders in the church are for. When necessary, those in leadership should step in and try to facilitate communication and help guide the parties in the right direction. And Paul is encouraging his true companion there to help these ladies work this thing out. Now, who was Paul's true companion there in Philippi? No one really knows for sure. Apparently, the pastor there in Philippi just goes unnamed. Verses 4 through 7 reel off a series of short commands. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This passage is one of my very favorite in all of the Bible. What a wonderful passage. We experience peace with God when we come to Christ. And when we receive his acceptance and forgiveness, we have peace with God. But this is not the same as the peace of God. The peace of God is a piece of God's peace. It's a chip off the block. It's a slice of God's composure and a sense of God's invincibility and a surge of God's irrepressible love. Here we have one of the very few formulas in Scripture. You cannot manufacture God's peace. On your own, you can't get a piece of God's peace. He has to give you that peace. He gives you the peace of God. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But there are some steps that you can take to put yourself in a position to experience this peace. Here's step one. Notice verse four tells us to rejoice in one thing. Now, I can't always rejoice in my circumstances. Bad things happen. It's hard to rejoice in certain things that happen in our lives. But I can always rejoice in the Lord. I can rejoice in His goodness and in His grace regardless of the situation. So, here's the first step toward peace, the peace of God. Rejoice in one thing. Rejoice in the Lord. Notice second step, verse 5, tells me to be satisfied with few things. Rejoice in one thing, be satisfied with few things. This word gentleness, it means moderation or the ability to live without. In essence, it's, it's the idea of traveling in this world, traveling light, not carrying with you a lot of baggage. See, if you allow yourself to get enamored with earthly possessions and earthly ambitions, you set yourself up for major letdowns. That's going to rob you of the peace of God. It's been said contentment in this life comes not from getting more, but from expecting less. So rejoice in one thing, be satisfied with few things, and then verse 6 provides us three more steps. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. In short, turn your cares into prayers. And then the last step, be thankful for anything. There you have it. Five steps to knowing the peace of God. Rejoice in one thing. 
Be satisfied in few things. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. And be thankful for anything. And when you do that, look what happens. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It's just a supernatural peace you can't figure out. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. It just kind of rules over your heart. Settles you. Even when, even when you got every reason to be upset, that peace that passes knowledge, it kind of comes over you. And you're enjoying the peace of God. You're nestling rather than wrestling. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. What a glorious thing. And then verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Hey, a new you should think new thoughts. You know, the human mind is like a computer. They say garbage in and garbage out. And it's really true. This is why we need to feed our minds good stuff, godly stuff, thoughts and influences that will help us grow in Christ. That's what Paul says to do here. And then he tells us in verse 9, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. And to me, this is one of the most incredible statements in all the Scripture. Think about what Paul is saying here in verse 9. He's saying at 6 o'clock in the morning, while I'm still groggy, when my alarm clock doesn't go off and I'm running late for work, when I'm stuck in traffic, when my boss hands me an hour's worth of work and there's only 15 minutes left in my day, in all of these situations and more, you do what I do and the peace of God will be with you. Can you say that? Could you say that about all those different situations in your life? Hey, do what I do. Say what I say. Whatever the things that you've received and heard and seen in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. I, I can't honestly say that about myself. You do everything Sandy Adams does, and the God of peace will be with you. No, I'm sorry. As a matter of fact, if the Holy Spirit had not put Paul's comment in the pages of inspired Scripture, you'd think he was being arrogant. But we all need to be this kind of example. We all need to be able to say, don't just do as I say, do as I do. And then he goes on. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now the Philippians had supported Paul financially, but the pipeline had sort of been shut down for a time. And Paul was excited to see Epaphroditus arrive with new resources from the church in Philippi. And he explains his excitement. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. In other words, Paul says, I've come to a place in my life where I no longer let my circumstances determine my joy and my contentment. Paul had learned to draw from Jesus in every situation. 
in prosperity and in poverty. His approach was the same. Paul lived his life from the inside out. He refused to let his physical situation dictate to him his spiritual condition. No matter what his circumstance, he was going to take joy from Jesus. Through Christ, he was content. I love this poem by Ella Wilcox. She writes, One ship drives east, and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of the soul that decides the goal and not the calm or the strife. In other words, what's the set of your soul? Paul writes in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's his conclusion. Paul's pain never caused him to doubt God and his prosperity never caused him to forget God. He was confident that the strength of Christ would sustain him in any and every situation, if he was abounding or if he was suffering need. You see, the Christian cannot lose. He can handle anything that comes his way, good or bad, through the power, the inner power of Jesus Christ. In high school, I used to carry a pocket New Testament with me, and in it, I had this verse, Philippians 4, verse 13, underlined. Hey, before Tim Tebow wore it in his eye black, you know, under his football helmet, I had this verse put to memory in my mind. I can remember reading it before every football game I played. But here's how I interpreted this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That, to me at the time, that meant we're going to win this game. I'm going to run all kinds of touchdowns. I'm going to triumph over the other team. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But when I got to a level where I was no longer successful, I was no longer good enough, I no longer liked the talent and the abilities to play, I had to give up the sport that I truly loved. And you know what? I realized that this verse had new meaning for me. That this verse still applied. That even though I had to give up football, life wasn't over. Christ had strengthened me to play the game, but he could also strengthen me to move on to other pursuits. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can succeed at something. I can even fail at something. And I can still overcome and still be successful through Christ who strengthens me. If it's Christ's will for me to succeed on my job, then he'll strengthen me. If it's Christ's will for me to change careers, then he'll strengthen me through the transition. When babies are born, Christ will strengthen you to take care of those babies. When they leave home as adults, he'll help you. Let them go. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. See the meaning of the text? Verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress, now, technically, Paul didn't really need their help. He was trusting Christ. Through Christ, he could do all things. If God had not supplied his need through them, he would have done so through someone else. But he did appreciate their willingness to be used by God. And he recounts their long history of ministering to his needs. 
he says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent, you sent aid once and again for my necessities, that I seek the gift, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Notice, their generosity to Paul was a sweet, sweet-smelling sacrifice that had brought pleasure to God. Now, whenever a pastor talks about money, he risks folks judging his motive. For why discuss it if he doesn't need it? But you see, Paul had taught the Philippians that a financial offering, that a donation to the church or to a missionary, is actually a spiritual investment in that ministry. And that's why it's important for you and I to make good spiritual investments. You need to treat your charitable giving like your financial investments. You need to always put your money where you think you can get the best return. That means invest in ministries that are accomplishing something vital for the kingdom of God. That's where we need to be putting our offering. Investing in, in the ministries that are building up our own spiritual life, that are profiting us, that are, that are bearing fruit in our lives, and then those that are doing great things for God's kingdom. He goes on, verse 19, he says of himself, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. What a promise that is. In essence, he's saying you give to God's work and God in turn will supply all your needs and he'll do it abundantly. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Now remember where Paul is located when he writes this letter. He's in Caesar's palace, not the Las Vegas hotel now. Not that Caesar's palace. He is in the real Caesar's palace. He's in the royal dungeon located there in the ancient city of Rome. He's a prisoner. And recall the purpose that was attached to his imprisonment. In chapter 1, Paul told us that he had been locked up for the furtherance of the gospel. That God had put him in prison, apparently, to share his faith. And Paul's imprisonment was going toward the spread or the furtherance of the gospel. You see, God was at work, even in Paul's imprisonment. Did you know that during the time that Paul was in jail, he had an opportunity to begin to witness to some of the members of the royal household. Some of the royal court of Rome were coming to know Jesus. Some of the prisoners, the prison guards that were guarding him were coming to know Jesus. That Paul's imprisonment had been for the furtherance of the gospel. And here, amazingly, a few of the new believers in Caesar's household are here sending their greetings to the Philippians in his letter. And then Paul concludes his letter to Philippi, verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And there we have Paul's letter to the Philippians.